So how do we fix the world economic system? The answer is probably not Bitcoin, but the answer- but I appreciate that you actually tried to answer that. Oh, that is horrible. <laughs> so actually one floor punk is more than one floor punk. You think you have one out of 10,000 scarcity, but you have one of uh, 9,996. Well, what about artwork in the real world? At least you have the painting. And that is such bullshit of an argument. <laughs> it is a terrible, terrible argument. It's, it's a because... very like 75 IQ type argument. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, guys? Doug Polk here, and welcome back for another episode of the Doug Polk Podcast. Today, we are joined by Mike McDonald. Some of you might know him as Timex, a man who's been in a lot of the streets. I have been as well, of course, with a background in poker, and then also started Poker Shares just a few years ago, specializes in gambling, and now a recent move over to crypto over the last few years. He has spent most of his time and energy there. Mike is an advocate for crypto punks. We're going to be talking a lot about NFTs and punks, as well as DeFi and the market as a whole. So this is a good way to dip your toes in and start to learn about the NFT world, as well as a little bit of a deep dive on crypto punks, why they're so valuable, and some things you might not have thought about when considering investing into that area. Before we jump into that discussion on just what it takes to be an A-plus capitalist in today's society, I want to quickly ask you to subscribe and follow this podcast on the relative platforms. We are on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcast, you're going to be able to find us. And of course, we're also on YouTube as well at Doug Polk Podcast. I'll be posting an episode just about every week, although some weeks might do a little bit more often. If you want to make sure you do not miss those episodes, you need to subscribe and follow so you get those updates when they go live. Also, we continue the process of upgrading the mic and video camera and sound padding and everything to do with this podcast. Every day, it gets just a bit better. We now have the 4K camera in full action over on YouTube, and the audio should be sounding a bit better as well. I got a couple changes I'm going to make that should make that quality extremely clear, hoping to have that in the near future as well. Also, we do have a podcast with Phil Helmuth coming up in the near future, so stay tuned for that one. It's always fun getting a chance to talk to Phil. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into our talk today with Mike McDonald. All right, everyone, we are now welcoming to the podcast a, I'd say, I'd say a a friend, dare I say good friend of mine, someone that I've known for a long time in the poker world, the crypto world as well. Uh, one of the good guys, Mike McDonald. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So we have a bunch of different topics that we want to jump into, but um, I want to start off with, I was thinking about this right when you hopped on. Do you remember when we were in Australia and we we had to go into the casino main floor and it was me, you, and Caitlin, uh, my girlfriend at the time, or now fiance, and we tried to go on the floor and they looked at all three of us and they asked you for ID and you didn't have your passport and they had to, uh, they told you, no, no dice today. You're going to have to go back and get some ID to get out here. I for, I forgot about that. And I was probably 26 at the time or something. You know, it was, I think this would have been 2014 or 2015. And we're, we, I think that we were like final table of the hundred thousand dollar tournament or something like yes, that. We were at the uh, final table. It was the two drinking age 18 there. Pardon me. It was the 250k, I think. Okay, the 250k, even yeah. worse. Yeah, drinking age is fucking 18 there, and they're <laughs> over here thinking. I mean, you know, now I've got enough gray hairs and whatnot up here. I'm sure that I don't get much of that anymore. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. I had forgotten about that. That was rough. You you do look very young, even. I mean, you look very young, and I think I think that's something that's gonna. I mean, it's it's gonna be a blessing as you get older, right? But it's funny 
being at the final table of a of a tournament where the buy-in is $250,000 and the age to drink is 18 and they just won't let you out here. Nope, you're going to have to head back and get a that was that was some good times. Um yeah. so <laughs> so what have you been up to lately? What's new with you? What's happening? Honestly, like not that much. You know, there's there's often kind of, you know, something uh, you know, some more going on, you know, I'm just uh just out visiting my parents in Ontario right now. Uh, I've been spending most of the pandemic out at my place in Alberta. Um, you know, Canada's gradually kind of catching up to the times with uh, with COVID opening up and whatnot. But um, yeah, I don't know, not not a lot new on my end, to be honest. It's a bit of a been a bit of kind of a, you know a bit of a lull with both you know crypto and gambling and whatnot. Where you know with the crypto bull market, the last sort of you know nine months or whatnot have been have been so insane that I'm kind of uh, just kind of just relaxing, I suppose. Um, just yeah, haven't been uh, haven't been doing as much as I'm normally doing. What are some of your general thoughts on the state of the market as it is today? And obviously, you're someone who likes to take stances on things and put your opinion out there. And I actually really like hearing what you have to say because I think that you put a lot of thought into what you believe in and and the words that you choose and the takes that you have. I do think you've been a little more on the bear side of things. If I had to just put pick bull or bear, I'd say you've been a little more bearish on those with with where the market is at right now uh, and where we're headed. Although I do see some occasional signs of life. Where, what, where would you describe? What would you describe yourself as today? Where do you think we're headed? And, and what's your opinion on the market as a whole? Yeah, I would say I'm kind of. You know, overall, sort of neutral with a slightly bearish lean. You know, I felt I've sort of felt like as soon as we got into kind of the high twenties, you know, mid December, late December, it just felt to me like we're in this euphoric, we're in this euphoric time where you know whether we rally to forty k or four hundred k, I have no idea, and I want to be a, I want to be like you know long that, but I don't you know, whatever price we get to, it feels like we'll be a bit, a bit ridiculous at the top. And, you know, it, it felt like everything I was seeing in crypto, the amount of things going on with TikTok and Elon and the dog coins and, you know, the APYs and DeFi and, you know, and, and copy paste being worth billions of dollars, you know, it just, it all felt so unhealthy to me for so long. And it's, you know, you'll, you'll see these things, you know, um, Countries are adopting Bitcoin as, as their currency and market dominance is dropping or, you know, just it, it all felt like it all felt like I was in crazy town for a while where um, now I feel like it, it just feels more healthy, I suppose, where, you know, we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of, you know, uh, DeFi projects lower their TVL, lower their APYs kind of, you know, I think people who I, I basically felt like for a while people who own Ethereum or Solana or Matic or, you know, any of these uh, kind of smart contract platforms, I feel like they don't, you know, most of the people who are large holders, I feel almost can't sell because the APYs are too good to sell. So it felt to me like we were in this environment where the pricing of a lot of these projects was, you know, just, just kind of fake and no one's even considered selling. And at some point, everyone will consider selling. And I feel like now we've had two months of, you know, if pe- people have actually reflected on the cycle, be like, okay, I need to, you know, cash them out to buy a house or buy a car or pay off my student debt or, you know, whatever it is, I think, I think, and, and the, and the APYs aren't so high right now that people will just blindly buy anything just to chase those APYs to where, you know, um, I feel like, and then the other thing I think is that so many eyes have been on, on DeFi and on smart contract 
platforms that I think it's dragged the whole market up. Where even though even though you know smart contracts on Bitcoin are a meme and don't really do anything, I think that Bitcoin itself has been a benefactor of the success of DeFi, and so it's just kind of led to me being somewhat bearish for you know several months there, and now you know just kind of seeing when we. You know, when it got down to 28.8 or whatever the low was, it wasn't some crazy wick, which kind of showed there wasn't a ton of leverage in the system. And it sort of slow climbed from them there. It's just kind of, you know, I feel like I'm kind of slightly bullish lean at 30, slightly bearish lean at 40, you know, kind of, it just feels like we're at like a real price for the first time, you know, since they stormed the Capitol, basically. So, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, long term, I'm, I'm super bullish on this space. But right now, I kind of have a just a more neutral uh, view, I guess. The DeFi space is interesting what its effect on the value of different currencies. It's interesting to to watch that. And when you talk about the the tokens like Matic as an example, you know, a layer two solution for ETH. I remember tweeting about this and saying, I really like Matic's, I really like using Matic for farming because the fees are outrageously low. I think I had 0.1 Matic and it lasted me my entire time farming on on Polygon. I it just never it never moved. You just transfer every day, no change in, in how much you have, and it's 10 cents. That's yeah. obviously great. But the question really is when does the music stop for these rewards tokens? And when you talk about the APYs for farming them, you know, you look at you look at Matic and you look at what you could make farming Matic, you think, oh, wow, I can get 50 to 100% APY farming this token. But when the music stops, it's not worth anything or it's worth very little. And so you're 100%. It doesn't matter because the asset that you're holding is just not valuable enough to, to make up the difference. And I think that there's a couple of different strategies with farming that you kind of have to make a, a core philosophical statement on what you believe in, which is A, these tokens are fucking nonsense and this is going to end. And so I'm not going to be long these tokens or B, bring on the 108% APY. This baby can go on for a long time. And of course, there's going to be a middle ground, right? Some people, uh, I, and I'll even admit there, there are tokens that I that I farm that I think are nonsense. I, I farm a little bit of cake as an example, right? Just because the auto <laughs> yeah. cake is so good. It's have a little taste yeah. of cake, you know, and do I believe in cake? No, I, I don't. I don't think that it's it's the future of tech. I don't think that cake is going to be a, a, a huge player in in the market in, in the future. But at the same time, if assets become big enough, the market does tend to kind of follow the same path, right? Or the same. Basically, the currencies tend to follow the market and their value. When everything goes up, cake tends to go up. Maybe it's not going to go up as much as ETH or whatever, but it still tends to to follow that path. So there are exceptions where I am farming some occasional stuff like that, but. Overall, my my general stance has been: this is not going to be something that long term that we can expect to to be to be to be able to maintain these values. And the counter to that is that in a lot of cases, in a lot of examples, they kind of have managed to maintain their value. At least, obviously, everything's down a lot over the last two three months. But relative to Bitcoin and ETH, a, a lot of these actually have not done too badly. Uh, I think Bitcoin dominance has, has risen slightly, so they probably done a little bit worse than Bitcoin. But the point is, they're not getting absolutely destroyed, a la 2018 drop. Right? Is a little bit different. Do you see? Do you see some parallels this time around with what's happening uh, with the altcoin market versus 2018, or would you say they're a bit different? What are your thoughts on that? So what I, what I think is really dangerous, like what I think is almost more dangerous about um this market than the 2018 market is that 
So in the 2018 market, it's like, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're buying some shitty coin because allegedly the Korean government is going to adopt it as its currency. You know, it's like you're investing. Shout out to ICX or. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're investing in something that like you don't understand, but at least no one else understands it either. And it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're investing in like a promise that's almost inevitably going to get broken. But in a lot of ways, I feel an environment where everyone's investing in something they don't understand and it's overpriced is more dangerous than everyone investing in something that they all think they do understand and it's overpriced. So, you know, if you look at, if you look at a lot of these DeFi protocols, um, you see, you see how large the volume is. Um, but the volume is only there because people allow predominantly only there because people allow themselves to get armed and take losses but those losses are less substantial than the gains they get from farming. So it's like the the revenue they quote, you know, they say whatever, sushi's making, you know, a million bucks a day in revenue, but the people who are using it are are taking, you know, or they're taking a $1 million loss in exchange for $3 million in farming rewards. So they're making 2 million. So it's, it's really a negative 2 million uh, revenue, basically, you know, basically sushi buyers are, are net paying money to the people that they think is their revenue. So to me, I feel like it's, uh, I feel like everyone kind of looks at these and thinks, oh, wow, that's, that's good numbers. Oh, that's a good, you know, that's a good PE ratio. Like that's better than investing in a tech stock. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll buy this um, where they, they don't really pay that much attention to where the revenue is coming from and how, how that can be so liquid where, you know, these protocols can work the exact same, whether there's $10 billion in them or $10,000 in them. And, you know, if there's $10,000 in them, there's also going to be a 99.9999% revenue decrease to where I think that everyone feels more secure in 2021 than they did in 2018, because there, you know, there is like an income statement they can look at. But that that income, you know, when when the income statement they goes down goes up, they're like, oh, this is a good investment. And when the income goes down, they rather than think, oh, this is a bad investment, applying the same logic they did, they can be like, oh, that's crypto, you know, ups downs, you know, who knows which way it goes it's going to where uh, I think that uh, I think that for for the losers of 2021, I think they'll be much worse than the losers of 2018. Like this idea of like bad things dropping 96%. It's like here, it's like bad things drop 99.9% is, is what I, I think a lot of these protocols will hit a point where there's no reason to put a single dollar into them basically. Um, and I think that we haven't, we haven't, we've seen some, you know, we've seen the good stuff drop 70, 75%, the bad stuff drop 85%. But I really think that, um, I think we're a long, a long way um, from the bottom, basically, where I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that there's, uh, yeah, basically, I like the, I, I like a false promise more than I like, you know, like a false income statement, I, I suppose. Kind of. So when you're talking about sushi, are you talking about specifically buying sushi tokens? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm okay. basically talking about the people who, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's talking about people who kind of, you know, want to have ownership of these protocols. basically. Right. And, and so what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Because there's obviously a difference between owning equity and owning a token. And in some cases, it's a little bit more obvious. And I think that the most obvious one is, uh, well, there's a few, a few kind of obvious cases, but I think FTT is a, is a currency that um, it's kind of obviously different than equity. There are equity owners in FTX. The token does not represent equity. So you have an example there. You have a, another kind of interesting one with Uniswap where, okay, so 
you know, apparently at some point there's going to be some kind of rewards. And I think a lot of people are speculating that when this is rolled out, that they'll be able to capitalize on it by owning supply of, the, of, of Uni. But at the same time, we're looking at a, a currency that's, I don't know, was it ranked 12th in the world? And right now, what can you use them for? You can vote on proposals at Uniswap. That That is not nearly the same as owning equity. Uh, and so when I look at these values, I think Sushi is maybe an example where it more directly correlates to it. But what are your thoughts on these governance tokens and um, their speculative speculative values compared to maybe what they're actually offering? Yeah, so um, I think that as the more time that's passed, the more bullish I am on on Uni's approach. I suppose. So I guess I, I guess I would put Uni and FTT in a different category. I'll talk a Fair. little bit about FTT, but I'm by no means an expert. Um, I think that. Uh, I think basically the the way that I would look at tr- at trades like that is um, is when when crypto's in a bull market, it's easy to think revenue will be high for forever. And when crypto's in a bear market, it's easy to think revenue will be low for forever. Where it's just like you know, at FTTs and being you know, um, or you know, FTXs and Binance's revenues have been you know so uh, insane for the last seven or eight months, kind of thing. Um, and I think that that's not to say, I mean, if Bitcoin rallies to 200K, they'll be even higher, but it's kind of like a, a it's almost like a levered short-term bet on how crypto will do, I suppose, where I don't think whether whether Bitcoin is 50K tomorrow or 30K tomorrow has that much um, of an effect on their you know revenue in 20 years kind of thing, but which is kind of what these things should matter for, but it, it it's re- very relevant to what their revenue will be in one month or three months kind of thing, um, where when Bitcoin's at all-time highs, everyone thinks they're a professional trader. And when everyone gets wrecked, everyone just hodls kind of thing. So it, it's very, um, you know, it, it's weird You people looking at their kind of revenue numbers in the most raging bull market of all time and, and thinking that that will be indicative of what will continue happening in the future. And then, and then the other comment on FTT is just that, um, you know, they've said that once half the FTT is burned, they'll like change the mechanism or something. Which is like, I, mean, no, I don't think they've been visible. I don't think they've been vocal about like, you know, I think I think what it is is 33% of either their revenue or their profit goes to burning FTT until they've burned half of all FTT. And so okay. so it's like, so once half is, I don't think they've said what the plan is. Maybe they keep burning. I don't know. But it is it is a weird dynamic where, you know, you're, it's a little bit, uh, you know, if it, it, it you know you know I just don't know what the business is going to do, and knowing they're raising equity is a conflict of interest. But anyway, so that's what, what are you actually? Let's just take a let's just take a moment to talk about that. What, what were sure. your thoughts when you saw? So first off, what do you think about FTX's campaign strategy of buy everything, and then yeah. following it up with doing um, a, a, a round of raising funds kind of directly afterwards? What are your thoughts on that? What do you thought? What are your thoughts on the strategy? Do you do you have any take on what that kind of means? Because it's sort of weird to me to spend so aggressively in such large amounts of money and then do a round of raising right after it. Just, it just it just feels a little bit strange. Well, so I, I guess the one thing is I know um, CZ and Binance were one of their early investors and aren't invested anymore. So it's totally possible this was just to buy out CZ. Like it's like I don't know which shares were and weren't being purchased, but I know that. You know, um, Sam has, has mentioned that uh, Binance is no longer an investor in them. I heard that. Yeah. Which, so it may it may have literally been like zero dollars into their pocket, in which case, like 
it's kind of a, a moot point kind of thing. But regardless, I, I would I would sort of say that like I kind of view myself as like a an A minus capitalist, where like being an A plus capitalist, I kind of like I kind of feel like like scummy about it, even though I know they're playing the game better than I uh, I do or whatnot. Where it's just you know I I kind of just feel like. <laughs> the whole market is one insane bubble where you know like i just i think i just have like a blue collar approach where it's like i like making money in the sense of like oh i, I had 400 and now i have 450 like i like the idea of like find something that can go and make me money whereas i feel like what what public markets allow you to do is you try to think of like hey what's something i can do that can build me valuation so that my shares are valued more by the market and I think that the the strategies that people employ that don't earn dollars but do earn valuation always make me cringe quite a little bit where it's just like, you know, and I think like if I look at that, you know, you invest $200 million in the MLB, I'm looking at thinking, can I get $200 million of revenue out of that? And then, you know, the question I ask myself is like an A minus capitalist is like, okay, well, what revenue can I get? And then I, maybe I, maybe I say yes, maybe I say no, but I feel like if you're like an A plus capitalist, you think, can I pump my valuation by over 200 million by doing that? And the answer is almost definitely yes kind of thing. And so, so I think this idea of like, get your, get your name out there, even if, even if MLB brings in no customers, but it just like convinces your investing customers to have more faith in you or whatnot. And it doesn't change your revenue one bit, but it makes people buy FTT more, invest more in Serum, invest more in Solana, and just like make you feel like you're more important. It makes your followers think you're more powerful than you are. That can easily recoup all that money in the first place. So I guess, I guess I, sort of my answer is that like, it's probably a good decision to, to be throwing this money everywhere, but it's also a decision that if the reasons it's a good decision are kind of the type of decisions I don't like making, I suppose, you know, it's like, I like, I like just, you know, looking in my wallet and seeing more money than, than, than looking and being like, Oh, like I know how to, I know how to manipulate my believers into pumping my valuations is, is how I feel. And this is not just an, just an attack on FTX. This is like, public markets in sure. general and how, how the, you know, CEO of any uh, publicly traded company would act, I guess. And that's just, that's just what being an A plus capitalist is, I think. So you need so to be I'm, more like the Elon Musk's of the world, basically to yeah. get that A plus capitalist. <laughs> no, it's like that's, five that's star rating. Yeah. Like, it's just like, it's, if you were, I, I've, I, I think it's pretty likely like every one of our, you know, broke friends has like made more dollars than Elon Musk has in his life. Like, you know, I, I don't know if Elon Musk has turned a profit across his businesses in his lifetime. Like it's, I, I don't, I don't know if that answer is if is positive or negative, um, but it's reasonably likely he just hasn't net profited. Well, PayPal, of, right? Yeah, but I, I don't, was, was PayPal cash flow positive when he sold it? Like, I, I don't know, like, I, I, I don't okay. know. Even if he just got out with $10 billion, that doesn't mean it was a cash. It's probably cash flow positive now, but it, it's totally possible it this, wasn't. This reminds me of a scene in the show Silicon Valley where they're talking yeah, about revenue. value, and the, and they're talking the worst thing you can do is make money. You have you can't make. They're basically just saying absolutely do not make money because that's when you have to actually come back down to earth. Kind of, uh, I forget exactly the line in there, but it, it's sort of like that. The moment you're making money, then people have to look at the money you're making and compare that. When you're not making money, who knows, right? Yeah, exactly. Where it's like, I, I think that I think it's pretty likely, you know, if, if like, I think it's reasonably likely that his businesses have net lost money. And if they have net made money, it's definitely under $10 billion. 
and the valuations are whatever, 700 billion or something like that. So it's just, it's such a, um, you know, he, he, like relative to valuations, the profit is like basically a rounding error compared to, compared to what his shit is worth kind of thing. So to me, it just seems like, you know, I just, I, you know, it's like, I, I like, let's say you, you hop in a super high roller, you sell it 1.05 markup. The, the implication is like, you can, you know, go make money in the tournament. But like, let's just say you found someone who is so good at networking, they could go like flip that into 1.1 markup or something. You know, you, so you're you, saying, what you if know? I, in theory, knew Phil Helmuth, who, by the way, yeah, guys, exactly. will be coming on shortly, might even be the next guest, the stage. No. Uh, yeah, I, so but basically, so like, let's just say you buy a share of you, and you only buy the share of you at 1.05, knowing that you can sell that share to someone else at 1.1 and buy you out and get that immediate flip or whatnot. It's like that. I feel like that. That's what people are doing in in so many markets. Is they're they're just kind of buying like the charismatic leader, knowing that the charismatic leader can make the price go up. Um, and you know, it it doesn't matter if they can actually make. It doesn't matter if. The company can make money if the uh, traders can make money is is sort of the approach people have, and I don't know. I just I think it, I think the whole world is 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 crazy. Um, but I mean, it's you know, it's it's worked now for you know for decades, kind of thing. And I guess it's just like I when I say it's crazy, it's more it's like I mean, it, it likely is the right approach. You know, get as much market share as you can, and that kind of actually goes back to the Uniswap point. Is that Uniswap? I think is competing the way tech companies compete. It's, it, it makes your service free. And, you know, I think that I think with, with, with a DeFi protocol, I've, I've tweeted about this a few times. There's three, like my belief is that there's three parties that matter and you can't, you can cater to at most three of the parties. And the, the, the three parties that matter are you want to make um, terms that are attractive for people who buy the token. You want to make terms that are attractive for people who are farming um, to give, you know, give them good revenue. And then you want terms that are attractive for people that are trading using the platform, so you know, let's just say, um, let's just say you uh, you increase the fees on the platform. You know, you increase the fees, and now that um, that should help you know get more revenue um, or a higher percentage of revenue for holders, and then also for farmers, it should get you know more revenue for them. But then for traders, it should give them a worse experience because now they have to pay more to use the platform, so they can just go to a different platform. And you know, with each of these three things, with with any change you'd make is going to harm one or two of these three parties and the Uniswap party, it, it hurts the governance token buyers and holders because they get no revenue. Um, but basically this idea of getting people who trust the platform to farm and getting people who trust the platform to trade and give them a fair environment and like totally screwing over the holders in the short term to get adoption, to change, you know, to give holders revenue in the future. Because the idea behind Uniswap is try to get a monopoly or get, you know, enough branding that everyone feels favorably that they just default use Uniswap, even if the fees are too high. You know, three years from now, the dream is that Uniswap can charge double the fees of everyone else, but people still use Uniswap because it's a name they know, a name they trust, there haven't been rugs. And that's that's kind of the the path they're using where they're like, hey, we're going to screw over our governance token holders in the short term to try to help them as much as possible by getting as much market share as possible. And so that's, that's I think, the approach they're using. And the longer I watch this, the more I used to not like that approach. But the more I look at it, the more I kind of do like that approach. Um, and it, it's, it is more in line with how, you know, capital markets exist, where it's just like, hey, let's just get as, as much attention, as much hype, as many people who think of our business positively as possible before we try to, as you say in Silicon Valley, earn revenue. 
I think that while that does make some sense as a strategy, I think that this ecosystem is a lot sharper than most where people are very price sensitive because it's just a number on a screen, right? You look at your fee, let's just say, so Uniswap fees are 0.3%. Let's just say that you can find somewhere where it's 0.15%. I think that people can just do that so easily and you're looking at a trade. Oh, I can save $100 by doing this site instead of this site. I'm going to use that one as long as I know that it's safe. And especially as these... uh, these platforms like One Inch and Matcha and these other uh, D Bank has one as well. Basically, these platforms where they scan all of the exchanges to find you the best rate possible. I just have a hard time seeing in this space specifically being able to be, hey, we're Uniswap. You know, you're getting a good fair trade when there are so many other competitors that might have a better option for you. Uh, I'm I'm not I'm not sure that I, that I love that strategy, but but I do get the idea of of trying to build your brand and trying to compete, and uh, you know swap. I mean they are they are the biggest decentralized exchange, right? So they have done a lot of things right. Uh, obviously, they have some first mover stuff as well, uh, but you know there there are people that are going to try and compete with them. Obviously, Sushi is the most direct example of that. And I think if they try and get a little bit carried away on their fee structure, then I think that that will will end up hurting them in the long run. Um, Can I? I'll, I'll add one one point there is that um, so you know the 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 total amount of like if you look through one of those kind of routers that picks the place to go, they'll take the place that gives you the best deal when it comes to fees plus slippage. So what I think what I think a Uniswap can do is that they can have higher fees but lower slippage. Like let's say the end goal is that. Sushi, you know, in three years, sushi charges five basis points, but, um, you know, down from the 30 they're charging now. And then Uniswap charges uh, 10 basis points. But then Uniswap has enough higher liquidity that if you if you go and you do the five basis points swap, you're going to pay 40 basis points in slippage. Whereas if you do the 10 basis point swap, you're going to pay 20 basis points of slippage, let's say. So the fees plus slippage, if it's a more liquid platform, can still sum up to being the best trade while also giving more revenue to point, the holders. Yeah. So I think I think that is like that's kind of how I envision the competition will be is that you you attract enough people wanting to give liquidity there that even though you charge higher fees, it's still a cheaper trade. That, that, that this is my one kind of interjection. That makes sense. You need the depth in the trade as well, especially for the for the bigger positions. Um, and I think if you're using decentralized exchanges, you're probably more likely to have bigger positions because what you're going to pay in gas would be kind of outrageous for small trades. So I, I think that makes Definitely. a lot of sense. Let's get into what the main subject I want to talk about today, which is just sure. NFTs and more specifically crypto punks because i know you're a big is it a punk punk head what, what do you call guys that are into punks crypto i think, I think uh i think heraldus calls them head collectors I think. oh right i think uh i think i'm a head collector rare saw, head collector yeah i saw that because that was actually quite the fiasco basically oh yeah had as his profile in his profile head collector because someone wrote an article about crypto punks and called them heads and, and and that people buy them. I think he even said that he collects rare heads. I think is what they say. Punk buyers collect rare heads. Which is, I mean, kind of, kind of true. And yeah. uh, he put that as his profile. And then there was a bunch of drama at the Dallas Mavericks, which he also works at. And the GM got fired. And they thought that after he got fired, Heralibus put head collector, meaning that the GM, he got the GM fired. 
And uh, I told this, I told this to Elvis. I said, if I, anytime I'm ever feeling bad about taking some heat online about something that I did and the community's angry at me, I'm going to go look at that thread of the things that they said about him because it was brutal. And I was reading it and you, you feel for people that, you know, you feel for people when you know that this is not true. Well, and, and it's just every single comment is just, <laughs> it's just pitchforks. We got to get this guy out of here. Just the meanest possible thing, things you could think of. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure how is, is, is doing fine, but it was, it was funny seeing that whole, that whole mob mentality go down on something where, where you just want to say, Hey, this isn't true guys. But anyway, back to crypto punks. What was it that initially drew you to them? And why do you think that these are going to be so valuable in the future? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the thing that initially drew me to them, um, was basically under like understanding that there, there is a thesis for why they're scarce, I guess, where, you know, I think that, I think that, um, I've, I've told a few people, um, this where I think, I think when a lot of people think about NFTs, they kind of confuse the, and I was guilty of this until, um, this year. Um, I think they sort of confuse, you know, is this an interesting, two questions, is this an interesting innovation? Question one and question two, will this, uh, will this token go up in price? And I think a lot of people, who think no for the second question, by definition, think that that means no for the first question as well. You know, they think that you think they think that um, this being an you know the provable ownership of a digital asset, um, they think that that is uh, you know going to go. If they're not good investments, so then they think they're not good innovation. But I, I think at the end of the day, in the same way, you know, mo- I think the reach. I think it's a, a weird position to think that fungible tokens are interesting and non-fungible tokens are categorically disinteresting. <laughs> it just seems really stupid to me that, uh, you know, that I, I think that, I think that anyone who, who thinks that, you know, um, that various, you know, assets on blockchains are, are interesting, but if assets on blockchains are not all identical, they're definite by definition disinteresting. I think that anyone who has that is doing some crazy mental gymnastics. So, you know, I think, I think that the, the reach of thinking, okay, NFTs can at least be interesting is, is a reach that everyone I think should be able to make. I think you can only not make that reach if you believe that, you know, you know, uh, artwork is only good for firewood or something like that. And baseball cards are only good, you know, to like, to write on if you run out of paper or, you know, like, I think if you can accept that, you know, any sort of collectible that makes someone happy um, can be valued it, a, a, a digital collectible that makes someone happy being valued, I think is, you know, I think, no, I think not making that reach of faith, I think is, is uh, very hypocritical. And then to, to the question of whether they'll go up in value, I guess to me, I think that, um, I, I think that basically um, more and more people, like, I don't think many people in 2019 thought, oh, NFTs are, are interesting with a good thesis. And now in 2021, they don't, I think it's kind of like a, um, you know, even people who sold their Bitcoin in 2012, I think they can still understand the thesis of why they originally had Bitcoin and things. And I think it's kind of one of those things. It's a valve that starts closed that, you know, once it opens, it doesn't close again. Um, and so I don't think many people who believed in NFTs will stop believing in NFTs. And I think that more and more people will start. And, and believing doesn't necessarily mean investing. You know, I, I believe in 
I believe um, art can be valued, but I don't own any rare artwork or, you know, anything like that, or, you know, some things that I think look nice, but none of them carry to high cost. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think thinking art can be valued means I should by definition own any. And I don't think that believing in NFTs, be believing NFTs can be valued means you should go buy NFTs. Um, and then I, I think that, I think they're one of the toughest assets um, to price. You know, it's totally based on sentiment and we're in this raging bull market to where, you know, I think I think uh, an idea of just blindly close your eyes and don't buy NFTs until a bear market is is probably at least a B plus strategy kind of thing. You know, it's you know, it's certainly uh, you know, I think I think uh, you know, people can you know, some of these things can go grow so highly illiquid when communities aren't doing well. But I think the the, the main, anyways, the point. I think the the thesis I like behind CryptoPunks is that there's a very small number of NFTs that kind of predate the ERC seven twenty one standard. And I think that, you know, uh, you know, Ethereum being the first on um, on Ethereum, I think they say this thing, this thing made by a guy, Kevin McCoy, which recently sold for like a million dollars um, that was created on Namecoin in like 2012 or 2013 was the first NFT or whatnot. But Namecoin, the chain, I think, died. You know? so, so like there, there are these old school NFTs. I think they all have, have a thesis. But say you take something like Ethereum, you know, the first one that was built on Ethereum. It's sort of if people aren't familiar with it, it's kind of like collecting hexagons on a settlers of Catan board. Like you can be like, Hey, look, mom, like I own this hexagon over here cost me 20 ETH or whatnot. But it, you know, you put on that hexagon and it has a set geographical location, but they kind of look like the other hexagons. There's maybe three different colors or something like that. Uh, yours is, is a unique one, but it, it's sort of, you know, if you make that, you know, you're not a lot of people are making those hexagons, a Twitter picture. And, you know, I think that, I think there were a few things of that nature that happened. Um, and then Punks was the first one that really built a community sort of mid 2017, about, you know, four or five months before CryptoKitties, where that was that was actually the the project that kind of inspired the stand, the ERC 721 standard that other NFTs are built on. And I think there's just something to be said that everything that predates that is a little bit of like a historical relic or something where it was, you know, it, it's like a, a thing that was built you know, a thing that was built that was deemed interesting enough that they had to build the technology to make this easier going forth. And so I think that I think as NFTs are adopted and um, used by more and more people, I think that going to something like punks, also something like Ethereum as well, um, I think has such a, a logical thesis for uh, why more and more people will become interested in them over time. I think the first point where you talked about fungible versus non-fungible it is funny to me when I see people get really hardcore on one item because let me give you the, the example I have in mind, Bitcoin ma maximalist versus non-Bitcoin maximalist in the crypto space. With Bitcoin maximalist, it's a little bit funny to me because, okay, you were willing to take this leap into a totally new world, but then you hardcore believed anything past that in the same space, <laughs> scam, okay? So you're willing, you're willing to take your money and put it really, really take a big jump here, but then not, you're not willing to look at ETH. You're not willing to look at anything else other than Bitcoin. So it reminds me that a little bit in that it's, it, it is kind of funny to say these value, those no value when the reality is there's going to be value uh, in, in many different things. And we've seen this happen over the last several years where more and more interesting products are going to pop up more and more interesting ideas. And as for entities specifically, you know, I think that, I think that just kind of going back to the, the basic, why are these valuable? 
it's really a combination of scarcity uh, and significance. And you need both of those. The scarcity is what makes it, oh, this is mine. There are not many of these out here, or there are X number of these out there in the world. And, and the most valuable ones, usually it's one. And I own it. I own this very scarce resource. And then the other important aspect is what does it signify? What 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 does owning this mean, right? The guy who has the first NFT. I own the first ever NFT. That's that's very significant. So it's the blend of those two things that creates the value. And when we compare that to real world artwork, because that's always the comparison that is made with people in the real world who are not fans of NFTs. And let's get this straight. I'm not some huge NFT guy. I don't own any NFTs. I'm not a huge NFT guy. But when these comparisons brought up, they say, well, what about artwork in the real world? At least you have the painting. And that is such bullshit of an argument. <laughs> it is a terrible, terrible argument. It's it's a because, very like 75 IQ type argument. Yeah. But I hear them all the time because all the what? time. Yeah. I could print it's really out the, funny. Yeah, I could print out the Mona Lisa. I could put it on my wall. I don't own the Mona Lisa, right? It's not, it's not that I have the real Mona Lisa. I have a fake Mona Lisa and I get the same exact viewing experience as the real. Maybe the paintbrushes are a little bit different. I'm sure I could hire someone and I could have a very you good could hire copy. a fantastic painting to make something that's arguably a, a better looking version of the Mona Lisa for like four grand or something like that. That, you know, very few people could tell the difference. Or if you wanted, make one that just looks a little better. You know, sure. <laughs> maybe it's clear she's smiling. Maybe yeah. it's clear she's not. I don't know. That could be something that yeah. we look at. But the point is, it's not the fact that the painting looks like that and you can hang it on your wall that makes the Mona Lisa valuable. It's its significance. And that's what you're buying with NFTs. You don't need to own the rights to the face. I hear people talk about that. <laughs> this is just such noob stuff. You own the actual thing and what's and there's only one and its significance is important. And so I think I think when I first heard about NFTs, it immediately made sense to me. And and, and immediately I thought, this is not stuff that I would want to buy, but it makes sense to me that these are going to be valuable. And I yeah. think that with with punks, it does have this interesting inter- intersection where obviously it's on Ethereum, so it's on the the biggest platform where you can have NFTs, and then also it's uh, it's got this social status element where it's kind of nice. I like the point you brought up. You can't make a hexagon your profile picture. Well, you can, but <laughs> what yeah. what is that, right? Uh, people can, aren't swiping right for the hexagon <laughs> exactly so you can make it your avatar it gives you a little bit of an identity and it also kind of makes a statement and and they're cool i mean i i've seen all you all you guys having all the crypto punks on there and i've definitely at points debated buying one myself but i think i think what's going to be interesting is you kind of talked about this what's it like during the bear market right because i think during bull markets the crazier the thing you're buying typically the better that it can peak at Um, you're just playing a much more volatile game. It's almost leveraged, right? You're almost leveraged longing ETH when you buy an NFT in a way, obviously it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what are your thoughts on what's going to happen to these? Do you see these still maintaining that significance in the future? I mean, obviously there can only be 10,000. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think, I I mean, so what I think is, uh, I think if if you, okay, this is like, I I don't want to be, like to a total shill or anything like that. But I think if, if you look through any project, like you look through, like, you know, you look at a hot project, you look at Solana or something like that. And you think like if Solana is going down in price or whatnot, how much money do the people who believe in Solana have to go buy dips with and, you know, things of that nature. 
And the punk maximalists are so fucking rich and not that all in punks kind of thing. Like most of the, most of these guys who really love punks, it's like, oh yeah, I have like $400 million of Ethereum. I don't mind investing like 3 million into rare heads or whatever. You know, it's just like, it really is, you know, it really is kind of like, uh, you know, like a, a club of elites or whatnot, where, you know, the biggest buyers lately are mostly just the DraftKings owners. You know, it's like, it's like the biggest, it's like the guy, the guy who bought that alien recently, you know, he owns like, I don't know, $4 billion of DraftKings stock. You know, the, the CEO bought a zombie recently. One of the biggest collectors lately is one of the co-founders that Matt, Matt Kalish is probably the guy who's bringing the most people to punks. Like last night, Steve Aoki bought his first punk or whatnot. And it's just like, it's just like, you know, it, it to me, it just feels like, uh, you know, I like this expression. I think CMS was the guy who started this. Like, it just seems like a hot ball of money that can't be stopped where it's just, you know, it's one of those things where to, you know, the people, you know, the, the higher the prices get, the more attractive it becomes to a higher and higher tier of people reputationally. Like if I saw these and they were $700, you know, early 2018 or something, I would probably have just been like, man, like I'm, you know, I'm running a few businesses. I'm a busy guy. I'm doing, you know, it's like, yeah, these might go up. But like, I don't care kind of thing. And it's like they hit a point where I was just like, okay, you know, I actually go and calculate what's the market cap, what's the market cap to other similarly significant prices, et cetera. And just, you know, and, and also I think I'm, I, you know, I'm in a, uh, a scenario where I feel like I know enough people that are, you know, way wealthier than myself and know how they think about things where I'm just like, well, what prices would they, this guy start getting attracted to them? What price will be that? At what point? At what point would um, such and such need to like panic sell his punks or you know whatnot? It just sort of made me realize that you know when these are are almost undeniably the best NFTs, the the prices should hit a point where I feel that like it, it seems like at some point they'll hit a point or price where I think oh wow those are too high. And you know who the hell is buying it? I think we're we're pretty far from those prices right now. Just it's push, like it, just to push yeah, back sorry, on that for a second. Well, I interrupted you. You don't have to say sorry. That was Canadian yeah. of you, Mike. Um, <laughs> but, but just to push back on that for a second, it's not a question of are they best right now, right? It's a question of what's going to be the best in the future, and are these NFTs that are not yet out that could be different in whatever way? How will punks fare against those? I think that's really the question because I don't think that there are people arguing. Punks is by far and away the most successful NFT at the moment. I mean, there have been different ones that have had moments, rare Pepe's, uh, obviously Crypto Kitties. There's there's been moments, but currently today, no, nothing is even close to punks. I don't think. So this okay, so that's so that's a, that's a good point you raise, and um, I'm I'm largely this, this is less the case for elite punks. You know, I think I think right now the the aliens are the best NFTs, and that drives a lot of the value. You know, I think if if better if and or should I should say when when better NFTs come out that are better than aliens, I think that hurts aliens and helps you know every other punk basically. And, and you know, let's just say as an example, um, you know, let's just say as an example, they um, you know they NFT the Dallas Cowboys or something. And whoever 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 owns this NFT owns the Dallas Cowboys, for instance. Like that's better than an alien by a lot, and it's pretty cool. You can fractionalize it. You can vote on you know New Jersey's or whatever it is. But it's like you could have you know clearly the the Dallas Cowboys are going to be more valuable than an alien. And I think that I now see. that in some ways in some ways that hurts the um, the aliens because you can't be like oh well these are the best NFTs anymore. But then I think it helps punks because it's like 
Well, now all of a sudden you have like, you know, a million Dallas Cowboys fans who are like, well, what the hell is this? You know, he sold the team and then investigating NFTs and be like, oh, well, what are other interesting NFTs? Where I think that I think the types of things that inevitably will be more valuable than the best punks draw attention to the NFT space and are like, holy shit, like, you know, you have, uh, you know, I mean, let's just say hypothetically, you had, uh, you know, Trump threw out some lowball offer trying to buy Greenland or whatever. It's like, let's just say NFT Greenland. It's like, okay, highest bidder, you know, one and a half trillion and it's yours or whatever. You know, it's like, and it's like America can sell it to China or, you know, whatever it happens to be. It's like, bad really beat for Greenland. Bad beat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it, it's just like, you know, it, it, it's like the, like, it, you know, an NFT just signifying the ownership of a you know non-digital asset is kind of like a very you know liquid environment for it to be transacted. So I think that you know almost by definition there will be ultra ultra elite NFTs sold at some point. Um, and so I think that I think that for um, for especially the non-super elite punks, I think it's a positive. You know, I think I don't think it's I don't think it's like some some artist is you know if some artist comes out who's so reputable that you know, him making a series of avatars gets a very high price or whatnot. I think that um, the types of people who buy those will may also come in and buy some punks and the type of people who own punks won't be like, oh shit, like, you know, Banksy is, is making his project. I got to sell my punks. It's more, you know, I think it's more just, you know, it ends up becoming, um, you know, a, a popular alternative, but I think in a lot of ways, punks will always have a marketing, a small, like a small to large, depending on the project, marketing pull from every other project kind of thing. And that, that's sort of my idea is that they almost like signify the innovation. Um, and, and that's kind of my thesis there. Not that they'll always be most valued, but that, you know, and let's, let's just say hypothetically the Banksy example that comes up, you know, Banksy makes something that now surpasses punks in terms of market cap. Well, now someone else comes and makes another project, makes some $250 million market cap project. And you think, who's going to suck more of that project's customers between the Banksy NFTs versus punks. And I think punks will be the larger suck of liquidity basically. So th that that's kind of my idea is that every, everything that happens will like in the NFT space will have, um, have some pull um, from other projects. And then, I mean, in, in bear markets, totally prices can go down and they can go down plenty. But I guess, I guess the overall point is that the, uh, it's hard for them to go down. Like a lot of a lot of these projects, they're dominated by people who, who you know, are are, are unit biased. They can't afford X Y NFT, so they buy Y NFT. And when this project is already generally owned by people who are kind of owning the best ones, I think most people are just like, oh yeah, I'll check one percent of my net worth into these. You know, it, it's there 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 are very few people who are like, okay, like. I got 500k. Let's buy a 500k punk. You know, oh no, it's down to 400k. I'm gonna panic sell it for 300. You know, it's very. It seems to very much be dominated by people. You know, people don't people don't panic sell their Bugattis or whatnot. You know, it's like they're they're owned by people who already have too much money, more money than they know what to do with for the most part. And I think that I think bear markets will probably affect uh, punk holders less than most altcoin markets. I would say probably. Probably, I think I think punk holders will maybe be affected more than Ethereum holders, or yeah, probably more than Ethereum holders, more than Bitcoin holders. But I might argue less than any other cryptocurrency. 
there might be some weird ones like ETC where these guys are all so, so principled, like, you know, ETC holders might be more diamond handed than even Bitcoin holders kind of thing, but like ignoring weird things like Zcash or whatever, where, you know, of, of notable things, I think there are very few where in people will be more prepared and more, you know, resilient in, in bear markets than I think punk holders will be. Do you think that there is a strategy for someone that's considering buying a punk? I, I, what kind of jumps out at me is, it seems that there would be a lot of value on buying a floor punk, buying a punk that's the absolute bottom of the price, because then you're exposed to the market while paying the least you possibly can. Uh, and then what also seems to make some sense is buying the really elite ones, because when you're looking at these this group of buyers that is not very price sensitive, anyone that's considering buying a $1 million NFT is not very price sensitive. Uh, that maybe there could be a lot more room for upside and on those two. Do you think the middle middling punks have more value? Are there certain attributes that get get get, get some details sure. here, Mike? Let's say that someone was going to buy a punk. What where was the value at? Yeah, so uh, so it's interesting where my my kind of main thesis on punks has been playing out a fair bit to where I'm not so sure it's a good thesis anymore where you know say when i when i when i so there's ten thousand punks um when i when i got in there were maybe 1400 unique owners so the average person owns seven punks and now i think there's 2600 so the average owner owns under four punks and you know i think i think more i think something like 65 percent of people only own one punk um you know most people buy one and you know i think it's just you know i think 60 percent of punks are male uh, 40% are female. And I think, you know, I, I would guess probably low 90% of buyers are males. So it's like in a, in a, you know, when there was a hundred users or a couple hundred users, it was okay. Females are scarcer than males. So females had a premium over males, but now, now when we're in an environment where most people have one punk, they're like, okay, I want a punk that looks like me. And, and when it's mostly guys, we've seen, you know, the, the, I would say the punks that have been performing the best the last few months, which you know, I've been, I've been somewhat invested in is just take a punk that just looks like an average guy. You know, there, there's a couple, there's a couple haircuts that have, you know, 3% of, of people have a haircut that looks like that, but maybe 25% of people, you know, there's, you know, I, I remember telling you about the peak spike punks and you're saying everyone's already showed you because there's literally, there's literally a haircut that looks exactly like your hair. But I, I would also, that's a haircut that in some ways I'm a little bit bearish on because as punk holders get older and older, People start losing their hair. Their hair starts getting grayer. Like ah. I used to spike, I used to spike my hair up, but maybe I stopped that in my, you know, when I was 27 or something like that. And so I think that if, you know, when we were all 22, maybe 15% of guys had kind of the Doug hair and now maybe 1% of guys have the Doug hair kind of thing. So there's, there's a little, you know, there, there's a little bit to be said that you know, the very just plain haircuts, um, are or just you know wearing a hat you know not there's maybe six percent of punks that wear like a hat that looks decent or something well probably especially as most guys are growing balding probably more than six percent of people want to wear a hat kind of thing um so you know a lot of the things that are not rare but just kind of look like a look like someone that you think might buy it has been a strategy that's played out pretty well um now a lot of those um in some ways, those have already overperformed. I think. I think what you're saying, you know, investing on in the floor is always pretty safe because, especially if you're not spending a lot of time on it. You know, a lot of the punks, if the floor is 23 ETH right now, a lot of the ones you see listed at 40, you know, some of them are only worth 23. You know, so, you know, to where you know, if you see something that's listed at 40 that you know is worth 40, 
then that's that's one thing. But uh, probably the average punk that's listed at 40 is worth high 20s or something like that. So it takes a lot of time to sort of figure out the the market sentiment on things that aren't on the floor. Um, so I think I guess that's, I guess it seems a lot easy. It's a lot harder to make a mistake buying a floor punk because it's it's a very safe yeah. approach where it's like it's kind of like uh you know it's kind of like playing poker you you can against certain opponents you want to play offense other ones you want to play defense where it's like your whether your mentality is can i make as much as possible or can i lose as little as possible the buying the floor is largely a can i lose as little as possible approach and i think i think most i think most kind of like if you're the type of person who you know whatever became a top 5000 poker player or something like that I think it's pretty likely if you if you eat, sleep, breathe punks, you can be like smarter than the market within two weeks of obsessing over them or something is, is about what I feel where, you know, day one, you're probably going to be a fish. You might make some sort of mistakes. Like, you know, let's say peak spike is something I was probably I was probably in punks for like five or six weeks before I realized like, you know what, like not a lot of people are buying peak spikes. And I was like, you know what, you know, when I think of my, you know, 40 people I know in punks, like how many how many gel their hair or whatnot? I'm like, oh, like one or zero or something. Ooh, I'm under was... attack. Oh, I'm really no, under no, attack. I'm not, I'm, not, I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, your hair, your hair has gone from a more common zero? haircut to a more, more niche haircut or something. What am I to you? Pardon me? <laughs> am I no, no, I'm saying of the guys I know in punks. Oh, okay. Of yeah, the guys I'm I know who are in punks. I was going to say. Like, half are bald, you know, half are gray, you know. Uh, so it's like, I think, I think that that, I think there's, and then also, you know, a few types of beards, like there's, there's about three beards that look pretty cool that are either a, what a lot of people's beard look like, or B what a lot of people wish their beard looks like. <laughs> you know, I feel like for me, I do a little bit of projecting where I really like the one luxurious beard is the name of it. And I think for me, I've never really been able to grow facial hair. Well, where I think it's kind of some form, some form of like, Oh, well, I wish I could grow a beard that looked luxurious. Um, and so I think there's, there's a little bit of that. We're just buying the very, the punks that you, you can look at a punk and be like, Oh, that looks like, Bob, that looks like Joe, you know, you, you know, several people that look like a punk. Those are often some of the best buys because at some point, um, the punk that looks the most like you will look the most like someone else's is kind of how, how it goes a little bit. So that, that would be, that would be the other thing is literally just say a, a punk that either looks like you or looks like a large number of your friends is, is the, the market seems to be coming, um, you know, people seem to be gobbling up all of the punks that look like real people basically. That's a good point. And now that I'm thinking about it, do I have any friends that gel or spike or anything in their hair? And I'm thinking the answer might be no. And now I'm questioning some things, Mike. You're bringing up some real deep <laughs> questions about who am I really? Is it time to grow up and put on a t-shirt? You know, these are things that <laughs> I have to mull over now. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I didn't make, mean to make this get so uh, introspective. It's good. I, I needed to develop and grow. I, I like the point you're making, though. That if it looks like someone, because when I look at punks, typically, like, oh, are the ones that look like me, what are they at? Oh, they're still more money than I thought would be reasonable for it. But I guess the upside also is, so one of the issues I have with it, actually, one of the biggest issues is that once you buy one of these, that money is out of play if you wanted to do any DeFi stuff. So what are your thoughts on that aspect of things? Is there such thing as a collateralized NFT? site is that a thing that's in the works is that a thing that exists or once you have your punk is it just sit on the sidelines now so there's i think i've heard of about three things that allow um nfts to be used as collateral i think the first one was i believe it's niftex 
um, I believe was the name of it, where what they do is they do um, they do loans against NFTs where you you basically have a the the lender has like a negotiation with uh, <laughs> I'll I'll say why I'm laughing in a sec. The lender has a negotiation uh, with the borrower where you know you get a you get a punk that's worth 200k, let's say, and you put it down and you guys lend out and you say, okay, I'll I'll hold on to this punk and I'll lend you you know. 50k and the person's like i want 80k it's like okay 60k you know it's like you you have this negotiation back and forth and you decide okay i'll lend you 60k against this punk you need to return the punk in 30 days for you know at seven percent interest a year or whatever the number is and then if you don't return it to me by this time now you own the 60k i own the punk it is is how i think that niftex works and what i was laughing at and one of the most evil ideas i've ever had is my <laughs> My uh, my friend and I, what we what we thought about doing is because you can see people's ETH addresses. What we were thinking of doing is trying to find the overlap of people that are using the most dangerous farms and also involved in punks, and just give them zero interest loans. Just try try to try oh to loan God. out money to people that I think are likely to get rugged. Um, and I, I, I thought about this for a little bit and then I'm like, uh, I was like, okay, that's a spick, you know, like kind of, kind of, a, that's a loan a little, shark. Yeah. They basically alone that, that, that would be something maybe an A plus capitalist would do. Um, but I, I was, I, I looked at, I think it was Niftex was the platform. Um, and I, and didn't do that. Someone else recently launched, um, launched collater collateralized NFTs. I can't remember who it was. And then, oh, uh, sorry, I'll, actually there's a couple other things I should, then the other one is Ave has said they they have it in the works. Like, I mean, I would probably just say, you know, if Ave or Compound or Maker or whatnot gets it to work, I'd probably just blindly trust one of those three instead of, you know, some like $5 million market cap, like that, you know, you specifically seek out to put your, you know, six figure NFT on and hope, you know, all the, all the like genius hackers out there, they've all tried to break Ave, but they haven't tried to break. A lot of them probably don't even know Niftex exists or whatnot. Right. So it's just right. like, I like, I don't like being the guinea pig on things. Um, and the other thing is um, the site fractional launched recently um, where basically you can fractionalize NFTs. So you could hypothetically go buy a punk for 30 ETH and then sell off shares of that punk, you know, 1% for 0.3 ETH, or you can charge a premium if you want, charge 0.4 ETH or whatnot. Um, I think that's a big part of the punk rally recently is that people can go buy punks and then sell them off to people. I think with with sports cards, that's been a big factor in in the rally in the them rallying so much is fractionalizing the cards. So I think people are kind of having the same thesis here. Um, but basically, um, so if you, I, I I don't know exactly how fraction works, but I'm assuming it kind of works in the form you park your NFT there, you sell the shares to people, and now you can own that ETH and go yield farm with that ETH. So you know, I, I don't I don't know for sure. I don't know if it gets like locked in the contract or whatnot, but um. My default assumption would be that kind of now that ETH is is yours until you want to go, you know, reclaim the punk or whatever. Um, so I think that I think that's one way that I mean, then you don't have as much equity. Like if you sell off 15 ETH in shares, you only own 15 ETH of a punk, but it would have the liquidity on the other 15 ETH kind of thing. So so anyway, those would be so it seems like um, the industry is moving in a direction of NFTs being able to be used as collateral. Um, I definitely can tell you that they're the more aggressive they get with this, the more exploits there are going to be. Like, I'm sure that someone's going to create an NFT project purely just to wash trade it, pay a bunch of bots to act like community members in Discord, just rally something up until it's an insane market cap, lend out all the tokens and just never pay the loans back because you know there were no real buyers. You know, I'm I'm sure that there will be 
examples of people who are kind of too trusting of prices of valuations and get um, get really um, you know yeah people are people are definitely going to lose on these lending platforms where people trust uh, market rates too much I think and give uh, too much uh, too much lent against too little collateral um, so that's yeah. What do you think about fractional NFTs? Because when I've heard that, I would think that it would suffer from the same thing that I think Bitcoin suffers from today, which is just the idea of not owning the whole thing is <laughs> is something I think is a little bit hard for people. I mean, I think it, it's hard for me to imagine owning part of a thing. Not only, not only am I buying a picture on the internet, just thinking about how the common person might look at this, I'm buying a picture on the internet that I own a... 15th of I, are, are are people really willing to do that is that going to be a thing do you think um so i mean i've i've seen a lot of you know DAOs that have been buying nfts where you get you know um 10 or 100 people you know pooling money to go buy from a DAO. you know i know that um you know that you know when the doge nft sold did you see that or no uh you know, no i didn't okay so you know like you know the picture of the doge that everyone associates right. it with it's like you know that is you know a lady's dog who recently sold an nft basically saying hey i'm selling one nft from like my dog is the one that sparked all the doge memes i'm selling you know one nft of this and it sold for i think three or four million dollars or whatnot Good move. Um, yeah yeah exactly she gave it all to charity i think um and basically uh bad move no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> there he is and mike just moved up to being an a capitalist one more move you're in the plus territory <laughs> no but basically uh, i think a dow purchased that and i think DAOs have been purchasing more of the elite nfts where it's just like it's a lot easier to get you know people each putting in you know uh, a share uh of these things it's easier to you know pool a couple million dollars than to just have one guy you know pull the trigger himself kind of thing um so i, I think that i think on either things that are one of one or kind of elite tier and sets. Like if you're buying a zombie or an ape or something like that, it's much easier to be like, if you, it's much easier to feel excited owning 1% of an ape than like 1% of a floor punk, I think, or even 30% of a floor punk to a lot of people doesn't seem that exciting. Um, so I think that, I think with things that are more unique, you know, buying a Beeple, buying an X copy, buying, buying many of these NFT artists, I think owning a part of that feels better to people than owning a part of a set of 10,000, I think. And, and especially a set of 10,000 where it's like so many people are using these as avatars, as, you know, their online persona, things of that nature. I think that um, it, it, I can see how fractionals work better for things that aren't punks. I think I've, I've definitely found this with, you know, I found this out with some friends where with some friends of mine and I, it's like a friend wants to buy half a punk or, you know, a friend and I were talking punks all the time where we have similar thoughts and we end up chopping a bunch of punks or whatnot. And, and you sort of, at some point you sort of realize like, Hey, it's, it kind of feels better to be like, I own 100% of one punk than 33% of three punks kind of thing. So there, I, I do largely agree with that sentiment. And we've had, we've had this, um, this sort of punk index for a while where it's been very low volume. It's been an ability to buy fractional floor punks, especially if, you, if a floor was 20 ETH, you can buy 0.1 floors for two ETH and then you can sell it when, price, when the floor price rallies. And so we've had that for a while but it hasn't been um, that popular. And I think it, for the exact reasons that, um, that you bring up that I think it, I think it is, um, I think a lot of people, I think that's a lot of the success as you go down to different avatar projects, you know, there's, there's, you know, three dozen of them by now, maybe more. I think a lot of people like, they, they like this idea of, 
okay, I, you know, punks are too expensive. I like the idea of getting an ape. Okay, apes are too expensive. I'll go get a kennel dog. Okay, kennel dogs are too expensive. I'll go get a wicked cranium. Or and then and then also a lot of people, different people like being um, big fish in small ponds or small fish in big ponds. Where I think a lot of people, you know, they think, okay, I could own uh, a floor punk or I could go own you know uh, a 95th percentile board ape or I could go own the best you know the best. Uh, avatar in some more obscure avatar project, you know, something that's a 1 million market cap, you can spend 40 K and own the best thing out of 10,000 or, you know, things of that nature, where I think a lot of, a lot of people like this idea, you know, you can hop into a discord, you know, maybe instead of it being a discord with thousands of people trading these, you know, maybe dozens or hundreds, but you can hop in and it's like, Oh, like our King is here or whatnot, you know, like you hop it, you know, it's a lot of people like, you know, like the big fish, small pond mentality in NFTs where you own, the most epic one in a, in a small project. So there are, you know, I think that very much goes against the idea of fractionalization where you could own, you know, 1% of an ape, or you could own the best or a top five in a collection of 10,000. So there's a lot of different um, approaches that, that people have to these things. And it's, you know, I don't, I'm the only, the only NFTs I own are punks um, to where I don't know, that much about all the other projects and i think as you mentioned like often it's the lower market caps that will pump harder but i also think it's like hey in in a bear market i think a lot of these projects you know that i've seen how crypto discords die off in bear markets and a lot of these smaller market caps with strong communities i think it's very easy that um a lot of people will just you know get out of crypto or they'll start you know they'll find a new project that's more hyped or whatever it happens to be i think it's a little a little more defensive owning NFTs that have already been through a multi-year bear market. I agree with that. Let's talk about the actual top value NFTs for a moment, because I think that's worthy of its own conversation. We talk about aliens a little bit. We've talked about potentially Greenland. You could buy it. Uh, I want to, I want to, I guess, ask a couple of different questions. But my first question is, when you talked earlier about aliens losing a lot of value, if, for example, the Dallas Cowboys became an NFT, what basically my question is, do you think there's going to be some kind of premium on the most valuable NFT, the number one most valuable NFT? Do you think that there will, will be a premium on its value? And then my other question here is for the idea of an NFT representing real in real life ownership. Aren't there some kind of big problems with that? Like, for example, <laughs> you lose it, you lose ability to access it, potentially theft. I mean, that's always, of course, an issue for all of this. Maybe that's not an important one. But what if you lose access to being able to move Greenland? Now, is that just forever owned by someone that can't even verify that they own Greenland? Who owns Greenland now? So I guess my question there would be, what do you think about the idea of a token representing real world ownership in terms of the actual logistics? Because we, we talked a bit about this one-on-one a few weeks back where you, you, you saw the kind of stuff becoming more popular. What, what are those logistics like? Yeah. I mean, the, those, yeah, the, the main logistics are just totally outside the scope of crypto, I suppose. And I think a lot of people do sort of forget this, you know, they're kind of like, yes, this code is censorship resistant, but that doesn't mean you aren't breaking a host of laws. <laughs> that doesn't mean that, you know, no legal system would ever enforce, you know, the fact that no one gave you Greenland or whatnot. You know, it's it's very, you know, there, there's definitely uh, a myriad of other problems where I think a lot of these NFTs with physical, uh, with a physical thing attached to them, 
it's kind of like in it's more than just the physical thing attached. It's the sender's reputation attached where it's like, Hey, I can, if I want to whatever, sell a poker shares hoodie NFT, like I like, yes, I could just sell you this NFT and not send you the hoodie, but you're also kind of getting my reputation and that you expect me to not screw you over and not send you the hoodie. But now if I sell this to you, and now you, or let's say I sell this to someone unknown. I've already attacked your hair. I don't want to attack your morals. So let's send this to someone unknown. And then now they they want to sell this. Uh, now they want to sell this NFT to someone else. All they're buying is literally the physical NFT, where this person may not have this reputation of trustworthiness associated. Where you might buy this NFT and you're like, yes, like this hoodie looks so comfortable. It's the right colors. It's just my size. I only paid thirty nine dollars. This was a nice dip to buy. And then the hoodie never arrives. You know, it's just like, you know, it, it's really with, with a lot of these physical things, there really is, you know, and then what, what do you, what do you do? Like, you don't even know where the buyer is, what country he's located in. You don't know his, I, I don't think you even know his IP address. You know, it's just, you know, it's very, you know, with a lot of these things, when there is no sort of reputation from the seller, there is, you know, nothing enforceable about what's going on. You know, you could reach out to the centralized exchanges and be like, this guy owes me a hoodie. Like if he puts money onto your exchange, like steal it from him or, you know, there's, there are ways you can try to do some form of central enforcement, but I don't think that that one's going to pan out. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is, it is definitely a concern where I think that the, you know, one of the biggest, one of the biggest use cases for, for these physical NFTs right now is more just access to quick liquidity, which I think, I think is something, you know, the people that are, you know, the people who always say, you know, right click, save or whatnot, you know, those types of people, they, that is, that is one of the strongest um, arguments they have going in their favor is that, you know, I think a lot of the people that are accessing the NFT space right now, it's, it's more of a cash grab for them than, um, than it is, you know, a, a strong belief. And, you know, I don't think that a lot of them care if their community is strong in six months, five years, etc. to where I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is definitely a problem with you know, NFTs in general, but especially NFTs with a uh, with a physical component. You know, you maybe maybe we end up in some, um, you know, maybe we end up in some environment where there is, uh, you know, you have like a quite centralized blockchain. Like, I think I, I don't think Ethereum really is the right blockchain for NFTs. Like, I think for a lot of things within NFTs, you want a more centralized blockchain where you know, let's just say after an NFT sale, maybe, you know, maybe something along the lines of it needs to be your money needs to be routed through one of a few locations to be cashed out or money is even held in escrow on like a blockchain escrow until the seller confirms they've received the physical item. You know, there's definitely, you know, I'll, I find this way with, um, with, with things like Uniswap and whatnot. Like, I don't think Uniswap is the perfect type of DEX. I think it was basically a DEX that was built for Ethereum's limitations. Um, I don't think it was, you know, I think if someone was building a system for decentralized trading, they wouldn't build Ethereum. And I, I think this would happen with, um, I think this would happen with uh, NFTs as well, where if you were to build something for trading Greenland in a decentralized fashion, you wouldn't do it on Ethereum kind of. And so I think that, you know, I don't know what those will look like. You know, I haven't, I haven't used Theta or Flow or, you know, any of these kind of NFT specific blockchains. I honestly haven't researched them at all, but I think that, um, I think there will be certain things you can add to a blockchain, like, you know, the ability 
to roll back certain transactions in certain environments, I think could be helpful. You know, thing, things of that nature may be necessary for certain types of NFTs. And, you know, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think rather than, I'm not, and by no means saying like, you know, Ethereum is bad or anything. I'm just saying that, uh, and it, it, certain things that are trying to be done on Ethereum, I don't think it's the best means for them, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. There's always going to be trade-offs with security versus centralization and, and scalability, right? That's kind of the name of the game. So I don't think Ethereum was built with NFTs in mind. I think it kind of came as it developed. So Especially not 10-figure uh, ten, ten or in Greenland's case, like 13-figure NFTs or whatever. How much like, is Greenland worth? I mean, I was, I remember think I remember thinking about this and it's like, you know, it, it, whatever, whoever buys it would get a deal is, is, is like whatever, like, like, you know, let's just say hypothetically it's worth, you know, if, if, if a fair price is like 10 trillion, it probably sells for like half a trillion or something. Like I, you know, I, I, in my head, I would probably think if Greenland were to sell it itself for like one to 3 trillion or something like that. But uh, in practice, it, it likely should be worth more when it's, you know, it's not as big as it looks on maps, but it, it still mm -hmm. is a decent chunk of the land in uh, North America and Europe kind of thing. And it's, you know, and it's like owning, you know, if you, if you just want, if America wanted to buy up a province or Canada wanted to buy up a state or something, it's like, it would be fucking expensive, you know? So it's very, uh, yeah, I mean, whatever the number is, it's, it's, I, I forget if Trump said a hundred billion or something, whatever it is, it was, it would be a bit of a low ball, I think. It is funny with maps, how they get stretched towards the extremes. It makes them look much bigger than they actually are. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. But going back to talking about the, the most exclusive NFTs, the, the tip, the tip of the iceberg, basically, I, I like the point that you made that basically one of the things that aliens have going for them right now is that they're the most expensive NFT. It's the most scarce NFT in the, it's the most scarce uh, piece or token on the most valuable network or most valuable, however you want to phrase this. What happens when there are more valuable NFTs available? Does that, does that hurt aliens or where do you, what do you think about aliens in general? What do you think about peak values for these types of things? And, and what do you see being some of the things to consider around that? Yeah. So, uh, did you see the Tim Berners Lee NFT or no? No. What was that? So, so it's like the the NFT of the World Wide Web. Like he basically took his code for you know writing the World Wide Web and sold that as an NFT. Where it's like you know as far as you know as far as things that are relevant to the internet go, you know that that's a pretty big one basically. And so so the one thing that's kind of you know uh, rough about that one is whatever kind of artist transposed it or whatnot they they messed up certain types of characters to where like whatever language he wrote it in appeared different than um, it does here. So like, you, you know, the, the copy you get actually has some mistakes in it, which Ouch. is pretty, pretty rough. Like, you know, the, the code wouldn't compile basically. Um, and then, but I think that sold for about 5 million or so where it's like, I, I think it's, I think it's totally like, that's something, I mean, I'm, I, I, this is something that you can definitely debate is like if you if you nft things that um that have happened in the past like uh you know like oh where do you draw the line like you know can the can the moon landing be nft like can you know can america becoming a country be nft like you know it's very it's very weird as far as you know the 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 line that you can 
uh, build about um, NFTing something that's historically significant. And then if you deem this isn't historically significant, let's just say he, he built this NFT when he created the World Wide Web and then sold it 25 years later or gave it away to someone who sold it 25 years later. I think that would then be much more significant to where I think events that happen now that end up being the equivalent of the moon landing or the equivalent of the World Wide Web that were NFT'd in real time that end up becoming the things that define our reality in 10 years, 50 years could easily be the best NFTs. Um, but anyways, what I was going to say is that something like that World Wide Web NFT, I think you can make a strong case for that being, you know, at alien level or even above alien level kind of thing where it is, you know, it's a fucking World Wide Web kind of thing. You know, there, there aren't many things that are are more important in our era, I suppose. Um, so I get, I guess, in that regard, and then things that are kind of one of one are end up becoming, um, you know, less less liquid. You know, if if a, an amazing painter only ever made one painting, it may not accrue the same value as an amazing painter who made twenty paintings, because those twenty paintings you can constantly have trades that establish higher value, higher prices. Whereas the one of one, it may not get that worldwide acclaim of you know every eighteen months there's a headline that a new one sold for a record price kind of thing. So, you know, that's something that certain NFTs that are true one of ones can have working against them is that they have nothing to kind of uh, establish uh, price or value, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I think that I think that going back to it, like as far as what top NFTs can be worth, you know, I think that, um, you know, I guess kind of the answer is it depends. Like, you know, the um, like the Hon the Honus Wagner that's owned by the the guy who owns the Diamondbacks. I think if, if that sold, I think that would be interesting where, you know, that's that's just kind of undeniably the best card. You know, I think right now that Mike Trout card is the highest selling card. But, you know, if the if whatever the sorry card, are we talking about we're talking about baseball cards, ba baseball cards? Yeah. Okay. Uh, like, you know, the Hon Honus Wagner's all sell for like a couple of millions or a couple of million. But I think some Mike Trout one of one sold for like four or six million. But like there's there's one Honus Wagner that's deemed the best like. When it comes to card grading, it's the only one that's in like modern era levels of grading. Everything else is graded quite poorly. Um, and so if, if if the best baseball card went to auction, it's kind of, you know, you don't know what that sells for, where it's like, probably it sells for a lot more than anyone thinks it sells for. Like if people think it's going to sell for 20 million, it might sell for 400. You know, like you don't like when every single person can knows what the best baseball card on earth is, it just comes down to like, whatever, you know, Jeff Bezos is willing to, you know, outbid Bill Gates on it. Or, you know, like, like, like when, when, when something is undeniably the best, it's really hard to, to price it. Um, and then as soon whoever comes second place in that auction knows they can never get it again kind of thing where it's, it's sort of, it's a weird dynamic when things are the best, I guess. So it's just like, you know, no, no one's, I, I don't think, I don't think a, a, a top baseball card like even like a top five baseball card has has sold in recent years or whatnot, or in very few, you know, top 50 cards even sell kind of. So it's it's really tough to, these things all have like power law distribution. Is it that specific baseball card? I'm, I have no knowledge of baseball cards. So is it that specific? It's kind of known who the best, who, which the best 50 baseball cards are in what order? Yeah, so uh, be, I could, so I'm, I'm not a card collector. I've just spoken to people that are, but basically... So the, the story behind the Honus Wagner card is uh, people don't know exactly why, but his run of cards um, stopped uh, prematurely. Some people suggest like um, he just didn't want, like they used to sell them on cigarette packets and people 
People suggest that he was anti-smoking before anyone else was anti-smoking, or there's a few explanations for why his card was it's such low print. But if even if you look at like historical uh, magazines, you know, from whatever the 1940s or whatever, when every card was a penny, he was already like five bucks for that card or whatever. There's wow. something like there's something like 60 of them in existence. And this is before card collecting was a thing anyone did for a living. So everyone just like kept them in a stack of cards. So no card was held in like plastic sleeves or anything like that. Like I don't, I don't know when plastic sleeves were invented, but it's probably, they're probably a lot newer than that card. So if there's like 50 or 60 of those cards out there, you know, when they grade cards from one to 10, are you every, I'm sure you always see a Jordan 10 sold, a Jordan eight sold, you know, things like that. Um, you know, the best one is just a seven. And I think no other one is better than a four out of 10 by modern grading standards. Most of these, I think are just like, it's like a letter, like a B for bad or, you know, something like that. Like most of these are just in bad condition. And then, you know, the ones that are, you know, that get a number grading are worth several million. And then this one is just so clearly the best where it's just like, and the guy who owns it, he owns an MLB team as well, where it's just like, how the fuck do you ever buy this off? Like if, you know, if it, if it, if, if it were placed at auction, probably he just buys it. You know, it's just like if he if he came, he'd probably be like, well, fuck, like I just need I've gotten grown, I built my identity around this baseball card. You know, it's just like when when something's the best, it's just worth whatever someone values it at. And then the same goes for artwork. Um, you know, it's like I was I've had this discussion with artwork as well, where I think I think that the you know I think the kind of I think there's in my mind there are four big pieces of art, and I would say like I would say from kind of like worst to best, I would probably go like. Number four, Statue of David. Number three, Mona Lisa. Number two, Christ the Redeemer. Number one, Statue of Liberty. And I would just say, like, if Statue of Liberty went, like, let's say America, people talk about America breaking into three Americas. If, if, if America broke into a few different Americas and there was a bidding war to see who gets to keep the Statue of Liberty, like, what the fuck does it sell for kind of thing? Like, you know, it would be so outrageous. The, the, the bidding, like, literally every, every, every new America is, is printing as much money as they can to keep the Statue of Liberty in their America. Like, what do these things sell for when something is the best? Um, and it's really tough to price because, like, money is all fake, especially when the, the people that can bid on these things all have more than they'll ever need kind of thing. So it's just, like, it's really tough to price things that are the best. But I think that I think that's why NFTs have grown so high in prices where whoever bought the World Wide Web NFT, whoever bought various aliens, whoever bought um, the Doge NFT, you know, ver various of these ones, people, you know, oh, and whoever bought the Beeple 5000 days, um, the people who look at those NFTs are just thinking like, hey, this could be the Mona Lisa of, of digital assets, I suppose. And, you know, whatever, you know, some of them will be right. Some of them will be wrong, you know, it, but it's just like the prices that, you know, when, when I think people, when people look at, um, you know, someone paying a million bucks for an NFT, I think they're often thinking, well, oh, I could have bought a house for that, or I could have bought a Bugatti for that, you know, things like that. They're not thinking like, okay, this person already has $10 billion and already right. has seven Bugattis and already has a $200 million penthouse or whatever. And then thinking like they're bidding against someone else like them. And where does, where do you stop kind of thing? So it's like that, that's kind of, you know, when every, when there's consensus on what things are the best, it's just like it's tough to price these things and so it, it goes beyond the scope like i would i would argue that i haven't seen something that's the best sell you know it's like i haven't seen you know whatever whatever's the highest selling painting of all time is probably like the 75th base, best work of art or you know it's not 
it's not like a top, all the all the best art is all in you know fancy European museums and things like that. Like you never see like the twentieth best artwork or the number one sell or anything. So it's like it's really tough. Like literally, these things are at a spot where oh, you can't put a price on the Mona Lisa or whatnot until you do, and whatever that price is becomes fucking disgusting. Kind of. <laughs> so so that's uh, that's kind of where that's kind of where. I think people are are at with a lot of these things where once once some kind of billionaire who loves it has it, he's not trying to trade it to like triple his money or something. He just holds it for like forever kind of thing. The, the, these so. are the ultimate blend of scarcity and significance. These are the things that, that have the most significance and they are only one. That's yeah. the, the 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 ultimate blend. I've never thought about the Statue of Liberty being artwork, but I guess it is. I guess that does make sense. I mean, and, it, and it's like the significance it has, it's not like, it's not like a, it's not like someone goes and sees a little rust on it and they're like worthless. Like I would have removed that rust. You know, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like a, a big statement for what America is, I suppose. And it, it's very, um, it, it, it's something where like, you know, again, if, if America were, you know, were to split, which could easily happen in our lifetime, someone's going to get it kind of thing. Wait, hold on. Can, and we, how do you, can we hone in on that sentence? You think that could easily happen in our lifetime? Yeah. I mean, if you look at, if you look at, if you look at, say, okay, you know, we've been in a pretty peaceful time overall our lifetime. And if you were to look at the, the list of countries that existed when we were born and the list of countries that exist right now, like, you know, something like only, I don't know, 65 or 70% of European countries existed when we were kids. You know, they're all, they've all been, you know, it's like, Yugoslavia splits into six countries. You know, it's like there, there's so many of these things that just change. And it's just the, you know, the, you know, the, the ideologies in, in America are not, um, they're not in agreement. And I think that, I think it's every couple of years that passes. I think, I think America becomes less cohesive and I don't really see that uh, trend continuing where I think, I think a lot, I think a lot of people could end up in a situation where, you know, I think I think you could easily end up in a situation where what people, you know, the the group of people that you I identify with is not, you know, totally, you know, if you're, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, being going from, you know, you know, California to Texas or not, I don't think everyone has has the same kind of, uh, you know, world ideals for, you know, how a, how a country should be run, how people should be organized, and you know, I think that I think that we're still seeing. I think we're still very much seeing the effects of like what the internet can do. Um, and I think we're very, still pretty early on how, how the internet will, will change our lives. Um, and yeah, I just think that, I just think it, you know, we're also, you know, we're, we're going to be alive a long time, you know, knock on wood, you know, but yeah, so I, I think it's just, I think it's something like a lot of people think that uh, just because something hasn't happened recently that it, it, uh, it won't happen or whatnot. But I think that, you know, it seems, it seems somewhat likely that, uh, I don't know, things people want to move in different directions. There have been a lot of changes in the countries of the world, but going back to your stat on that, how many of those are first world capitalist countries that have had changes? Because I don't think there have been any major changes to those countries that I could think. Of. I mean, the closest thing I could think of is Scotland every now and then gets a little testy. And, but and- I mean, I, I think that's I think that's also just like a you know, if you look at if you look at world superpowers, you know, Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Like all the countries around Soviet Union, what I forget. Yeah, what but year. that's not capalist. No, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, there's no guarantee capitalism wins. Uh, it's like capitalism's whatever winning right now, but it's just like it's so easy. It's so easy for you know China to just be three times as powerful as America in 25 years, and just kind of like 
you know, the way, like the way America kind of, you know, dominated the world 15 years ago or whatnot, it's easy for China to dominate the world this in the, with the same, you know, dominance 15 years from now kind of thing, where it's like, you know, it, it was, we had a one, well, you know, one superpower world for so long. And it's definitely not that way. And, you know, the, the direction it's going, I, I don't really, it's hard to see how America keeps getting market share, I suppose. We, it's we so have easy a, to see how America, China keeps getting market share. I don't know. It's We have a very US centric viewpoint in the world here in America. And we take a lot of things for granted. Like, for example, the, the dollar will always be the dollar. I, I, I've talked to that with normal people. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah, that's cool. Very nice of you to, to mention that. It's very, it's a good point you make. And then meanwhile, their, their investment strategy is money in their savings. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah, it's own, a, own a negative amount of dollars. Kind of thing, like, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, most people do not own like mostly, you know, in poker, you, you generally need dollars that you can play games, but like most people, you know, our, our age range, you know, risk portfolios, etc. cetera, uh, own a zero or sub zero amount of dollars kind of thing. Like it's just anything you can to own assets is, is how, you know, I think a large number of people do invest and get your dollars into some sort of investment as quick as you can, kind of. You're a man that's known to occasionally set some lines. What would you set the line on in our life? Let's assume we live average life expectancy. America splits into multiple countries or at least two yes. countries. What would you set well, the line? So, I mean, I, so I think there's other variants of America not existing. I think it's totally possible that, uh, you know, uh, really countries aren't geographically based within our lifetime, you know, like, so I think, I think there's a lot of ways that like, you know, you can be governed, you can be governed by an algorithm or, you know, something like that. I oh think man, I think that the punks might've gotten to you, Mike. <laughs> I, I think, I think there's, I think basically I, I think that the, I think it's probably like, I think, and let's just say we, let's just say next 60 years, you know, if, if you say, what are the chances that America exists in its current form 60 years from now? I'd say about 50-50. Wow. Wow, that's that's it's, it's kind, of, it's kind of what I would say. And that's that's uh, you know, uh, maybe 60 maybe 60% or something, but it, you know, I think it's I think it's it's I'd be it's hard to imagine how it could be like 75%, I think. 75% to stay together, you're saying. Yeah, like I think I think you know, you know, it feels like maybe half or a little under half to to have, you know, some form of reorganization. I I could certainly see states changing. Especially, I think California is the one you think about most because California, it's the most populated state. It has, it's the state with the biggest um, economy. And then it also has such various regions, right? You have the inland areas, which are more agricultural. You have the tech center in the Bay Area. You have the, um, you have LA, you have San Diego. You've got Northern California, which feels a lot more like Oregon. You have the desert areas in the southeast. It's just got so many different areas, and they're all also culturally quite different. You have the OC when compared to LA, it's a very different area. It's a lot more conservative. So that one I could certainly see happening in some capacity. But the other problem is when you split up, you kind of reduce your power. And one thing about institutions is they tend to not like reducing their power in any capacity. And that makes me a little bit hopeful on the ability for these for them to stick together. But it doesn't really make sense for people in the inland empire of California to have laws being voted on by people in Santa Monica. This doesn't really make sense. These are such different areas. Why are 
they why do they have the same rules applied to them? And you know, I guess you could make that same argument at the federal level. And maybe this is just a general argument against a lot of regulation at the federal level, because when you try and make laws for 350 million people or however many million people we have in America at the moment, you, you start to get very inefficient because you're making rules for people in very different places. And that's why I think that the government has consistently overstepped its sort of what its boundaries should be in what it's allowed to do and continuously increases in power when it shouldn't. Both parties, that's not even just the left does that. They both do that. They do it in different ways. And and I, I actually, one of the things I used to really like about the right was that they at least would kind of fight back against big government. But now everyone's just big government. It's just everyone's pro big government because that's them and they want more power and they want to be relevant and they want to have, people don't like to let go of power basically. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It is like, I mean, it is, I I, I mean, I'll, I'll offend uh, a lot of people when I say this, but I think that whether, you know, whether you are, you know, left-wing politics or right-wing politics, a lot of the, a lot of the things that you hate about the other side are probably just as true about your side kind of thing, where I think that, I think there is a lot of, uh, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, it's a little, I always think of like the, the King and Kodos thing in, uh, in the Simpsons, where I think there's a lot more, um, a lot more similarities between uh, the motives of people in power, uh, regardless of like oh, what they say in speeches or whatnot. The incentives are just not correct. You're incentivized <laughs> to do what's best for you when what is necessary is what's best for everyone. And mm-hmm. I don't know how you fix that incentive structure, but certainly term limits in Congress, I think would would help. But there needs to be some kind of shift in people being incentivized to do the right thing. And I, I think about it with the way that America spends money or how aggressive America has been willing to pump out more money to combat COVID way past the point of which we got back to before COVID, because it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty easy to be the guy that says, Hey, let's fix everyone's problems. Vote for me. I'll, I'll spend. It's pretty hard to be the guy that says, you guys are not going to let want to hear this, but we're going to do a round of everyone eats their broccoli in America next year. That, that yeah. guy, no one wants to be that guy. Good, good luck winning as that guy. Yeah, no, I mean, and it is just like, uh, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit strange, I suppose, you know, this, this kind of goes into my idea of how, um, you know, what A plus capitalism is or whatnot, where everyone has this, like, everyone has this fundamental idea, you know, especially 2019 or earlier that like a, a dollar is good and valued and that you should value your wealth in, um, in amount of dollars rather than in amount of purchasing power or whatnot, especially purchasing power in other countries or whatnot. Um, and I think that, you know, I think, and, and Trump built so much of his, um, you know, popularity, voting base, et cetera, off of, look how much the Dow is up kind of thing. Like, look at, you know, gets in there saying this stock's up so much, this stock's up so much. It's like, Hey, you know, it, it's like he did things that were good for asset valuations and that's something that, you know, the median voter does believe in and does believe is important. And if, if you come forth and you, then you think like, okay, we're going to have, we're going to have the stock market break even for four years, you know, your, your wealth will be going, growing, but your dollars will be shrinking is uh, a much less attractive thing than your dollars will be growing, but your wealth will be shrinking because it's, it's, it's much harder to track like what your wealth is than what your number of dollars is, I guess. Um, and so it, it's a very, 
it, when, when you have this like every four years cycle of like, how can I, you know, convince people they're all going to make more dollars or whatnot. It's a very, um, it's a very <laughs> fucked up game where it just, it, it means that all the people in power are incentivized to create those, those same sort of problems I was saying, where it's like, you just try to get valuations up. You don't care about profit. You don't care about, you don't care about anything beside, you know, asset valuations. And it, it makes me just uh, very skeptical of everything. I suppose. So, so does, does one floor punk equal one floor punk or. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does. And, and thank, thank God. Um, Dan Smith burnt a floor punk. So now one floor punk equals 1.0001 floor punks. You know, Why do, been, how, how did that happen? So there, there's been, <laughs> there's been four punks that have been destroyed. Um, one of them, I don't know the story behind two of them were basically of the form. Like I'm so rich. I can burn a punk to make you guys think I'm cool. Wow. Like the, the very, wow. I, I don't understand. But what happened with Dan is um, a friend of his, you know, bought a punk for him or whatnot. And he, he sent the guy the wrong address. I think he sent an address that was too short. And the way Ethereum works is that they, they default, if you said, if it's supposed to be whatever, 40 characters and you'll send 36 characters, they default to adding four characters that are all zeros. And then when his friend was sending, didn't notice uh, that message. And oh, then this is really horrible. What, how really, does someone make that mistake? How long really is this? Five months, maybe. Uh, oh, just man. send a punk, send a punk into the abyss. Oh, that is horrible. So, so actually, one floor punk is more than one floor punk. You think you have one out of ten thousand scarcity, but you have one of uh, nine thousand nine hundred ninety-six. So it's uh, it's even better. It's the, like it's like the you know, dollars they keep printing. You know, uh, punks. You know, people uh, who make errors keep uh, destroying. Did did Dan then uh, burn another one because I know he likes the double up. So that could have been a nice option for him there. Uh, not yet, uh, but I wouldn't put it put it past him. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, go, going back to the, um, we were talking about uh, Trump and asset prices. I had a trader friend and I was, we were talking a little bit about this a couple of years back. And he said, it's really, it's really interesting because I, I don't think we've ever had a president who cared more about the stock market going up. <laughs> and that can be good for you if you own assets, right? You're happy to see this, but also it's kind of bad for people that he wakes up and can we get the stock market to go up today? He said, he said it was a very unique trading time. You don't see this very often. <laughs> no, it's, and it, it's very, and it's also something that's, that's worth noting is like, let's, I don't know, let's just say, I don't know what the number is, but let's just say of, of American wealth, 25% of that is, is denominated in stocks. Um, if you have 20% of your net worth in stocks, and stock prices are going up, like you're getting poor kind of thing. Like, you know, you're getting, your neighbors are all getting, are all outperforming you kind of thing where it's like, if you're, if you're, you know, you're whatever, you know, when it comes down to how assets get purchased, okay, everything went up, you know, more because everyone can afford to pay it or whatnot. Whereas if you, you know, I, you, if you own less of an asset than like your market share or whatnot, you're, you're short basically. And I think a lot of people, you know, don't necessarily realize this where if they have, you know, a, a small investment portfolio, but they, you know, their net worth is, is 1% that of the average American or something, 5% that of the average American, they can be excited to see that their, their stocks are going up. But all that that really means is that when they're, you know, out of student debt, and when they're later on in their careers, where they can now afford to own more assets, 
that the, the assets will be so high priced that they can't afford to own the fair number of shares that you know their older siblings or that their parents or their grandparents were able to purchase with the same amount of labor committed to it. You know, it's it's like it's like very it's like a very fucked up thing of like it, it's you know this oh the stock market should be high is just like hey the haves should be pulling away from the have nots even further kind of right. and, that's a good point it's very, yeah it's a very um it's it's you know everyone kind of feels like we're all in this together like our balances are all green but it means people with like a smaller balance than they would intend to earn during their career and during their lifetime are just getting front run by everyone else by driving prices to a level that they they can't afford the amount of ownership that their job is you know whatever uh uh you know whatever their job happens to be what that they can't purchase the share that they, yeah they that's a great point yeah. yeah, if if your if your buying power is decreasing relative or rather if your if your amount of money that you have is increasing relative to every is increasing less than everyone else's then you're actually getting poorer relative to all the other people. So it really yeah. and you can see this at play with all the stimulus checks. I think I I think I heard um who what's his name Stanley Druckenmiller he did the speech to USC did you see that it was a few months back. Yeah. He he, he made a comment where a lot of the people on the left are excited. We're getting people the money and they're all excited. They're trying to help the poor. But the reality is, where do you think all those checks are ending up? And what's that going to do to the wealth gap? And realistically, the people that are getting the money, they get it, they need to spend it. They spend it. Who gets the money when they spend it? It it ends up just ending up back with, with the people that you're trying to not help specifically by not giving them checks if you're over whatever amount of income, which is interesting to think about. Exactly. The people who have the least money, the only times when they get excess money are at times when the market is such a bubble, that they're almost inevitably going to lose kind of thing. You know, it's very, it's very, um, yeah, I mean, it's just like as soon, as soon as stimulus checks get announced, all the savvy traders go and get their buys in to front run the, the $1,200 stimmy pump or whatnot. And then when everyone, when everyone gets their stimmies, it's like the markets are already pump to a price that you're the exit liquidity for the people that had the money and knew exactly what you were going to do with it. Kind Interesting. Of, you know, I didn't so. know that was happening, but that, that also makes sense. Let's wrap this up on something light. So how do we fix the world economic system? I don't know. <laughs> you know <laughs> the answer is probably not Bitcoin, but the answer, but that's, you know, maybe the, you know, one of the, I don't know, one of the less bad, uh, less bad options. Like, I feel, I feel like, Bitcoin, I mean, I mean, Bitcoin probably just adds to a lot of the, the problems, but it, it seems like this, it seems to me like the, you know, the the best asset to, to make yourself a have rather than a have not, I suppose. It, it's sort of piling on to the, I mean, I think it's all kind of piling on to the problem and, and kind of building a bigger gap between, uh, you know, capital and labor, I suppose. Um, but it's just, you know, I, I just feel... I don't know. I kind of feel like I don't like having, you know, many assets that are denominated in, in my case, Canadian dollars or yours, American dollars. Like I like, I like something that is, is, is global, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I don't think, I think I everyone. Ev- I appreciate that you actually tried to answer that. That was nice of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I hate that. I really hate this thing of like, uh, it pisses me off about, about, Bitcoiners, I suppose, were, and I don't know if people believe it or not, but I think a lot of people have this sort of, you know, they get out there and they they say like, oh, the current system is, is broken, so buy Bitcoin, you know, jacks up there saying, oh, buy Bitcoin so we can have world peace or whatnot, after I've like filled my banks or whatnot, where it's just like, it's very, I don't know, it feels very, 
like I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a better system than the current system, but I also, you know, I, I, I don't think, I, I think that most people's goals in saying like the, you know, positive ethical things behind why you should own cryptocurrencies, I think has less to do with actually believing those things and more to do with like, Hey, that's, that's how marketing works in 2021 is try to pitch someone. If you do X, Y, Z, you're a good person. So do this good thing so you can make me money. Like, I think, I think that's, I think that's the main goal that most um, Bitcoiners and people in the cryptocurrency space have. And I don't really want to contribute to that where I'm like uh, a lot, you know, I, I get, I think it's a better system, but I'm not even, you know, that confident it's a better system. I think, and yeah, I think being transparent with your position and honest about what you think, even if it will make you money, if people take the action, well, at least they know that that's your perspective. I, I think that it's more fair than to give the, impression that you're saying this because it's the right thing to do but the reality is it's because you own the position you know what i'm saying totally i think a lot of people transparency yeah they 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 are very um and and it's such a it's such a status it's such a status quo thing or whatnot where you know i guess i guess i guess sort of my belief you know when you're talking about positions of power but i've sort of i've thought about this a little bit where when i see something that i think is a good investment i think it's i think it's good to basically have, you know, a multi-decade long track record of, hey, if I do something that's like a better decision than average, I encourage other people to make things, do things that are a better decision than average, like over enough years and decades, the people that I associate myself with will on average have more wealth, power, influence than the average share. And I don't know what's, what will be the goal of, you know, me and Doug becoming really rich, but it feels like we'll probably be better than the than the average person with wealth and power you know i have no idea if my you know if my group of friends my generation my era will be will be more corrupt than the the people currently in power but i just i just sort of have this idea hey if i can do things that i think will will make the um people around me money like that will probably pay you know or it could possibly pay dividends at some point i don't know how but uh you know maybe you know if it ever comes time to try someone comes up with a solution that I think is good. Well, if I've given people good predictions and good investments for 25 years or whatnot, okay, well, maybe they're more likely to listen when I have my 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 thesis on how we should split up America. <laughs> you know, they, they'll, they'll probably be more receptive. But I was thinking, if things go particularly well, we should get our own area that we could all just hang out. You know, something like a nice Greenland would be a good spot. <laughs> we could post up, could change the name. NFT it, you know, I'll trade my, I'll trade, I'll trade a couple of my punks for your, uh, you know, your fractionalized Greenland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exa- <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That makes sense. Mike, thank you for coming on today. I, I appreciate it. Always good talking to you. Thanks for some of the takes. Uh, very interesting perspective. And uh, yeah, thank you for everything today. Yeah, it's been good. Uh, good chatting. A wide, uh, wide variety of topics today. It was fun. That's going to be a wrap here at the Doug Polk Podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in today. Once again, if you are not followed or subscribed, make sure to hit that button so you don't miss when new episodes go up, go live, and show some support for the content that we're pumping out over here at Polker News Productions. That's going to be it, guys. I will see you guys again next week. Maybe the Phil Helmuth episode. Not entirely sure the order that's going to go down in, but at some point, Phil will be joining the podcast. Either way, I'll see you again in the near future. Thanks for joining today.